As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Each week, we are joined by a selection of writers from the Athletic to bring you unrivaled access and insight into the biggest stories in football. So, just like most of these podcasts, David Ornstein and Adam Crafton are with us. And this week, we're joined by the Athletic's Manchester United writer, Laurie Whitwell. Why are you on the pod? What, what, what on earth could we be talking to you about, Laurie, over the next... Hour. I'm as mystified as you, Chappers. Okay. Um, please enlighten me. Right. Well, um, what do you think the best role is for Dan James? Then I mean, that, <laughs> that appears to be the uh, the pressing issue. Um, no, let's uh, let's focus on Cristiano Ronaldo. Then that 24 hours that uh, ended up with him coming back. Well, if if he passes a medical and agrees a contract, coming back uh, to Manchester United. Um, when did it swing then, Laurie? We believe it swung on Thursday night when news became apparent that Man City were really in for him, that he really had agreed to join. And there was a bit of a crisis meeting, I think, um, at Old Trafford where they realised the impact that this would have, not only in terms of a playing situation, you know, bringing Cristiano Ronaldo to Manchester City, they need a striker. He's a you know very good striker, admittedly, in the twilight of his career perhaps, but still someone that could have scored lots of goals for them this season. But there's a wider consequence of what it meant for Manchester United as a club where you have a sort of legendary figure really going to um, the city rivals, the sort of tainted uh, nature that that might bring to his legacy perhaps, and also the way that potential recruits and and current players felt about what Manchester United were doing. Um, If they didn't make an effort to sign Ronaldo, what did that say about the direction of the club, um, I suppose? Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was very aware of that potential place to call to Ed Woodward, we're told. Uh, and it was a very quick conversation, we understand, where Ed Woodward said, yeah, we can do this deal. Um, we'll get onto it. Um, in the meantime, various other Manchester United alumni went to work on persuading Ronaldo that actually coming home was a much better bet than going to Manchester City. When you hear it like that, Adam... And you're you're always quite good with the uh, to to back up any cynicism I may have. Um, does that sound like a football decision? I think it sounds like a decision. What the thing I can't work out is: Did Manchester United sign Ronaldo because they really want Cristiano Ronaldo, or did they sign Ronaldo 
because Manchester City were signing Cristiano Ronaldo and that was too much of an issue for them for them to allow and it was too unpalatable. I, I think even if that's the case, it was still the right thing to do because if City add Cristiano Ronaldo to their team, I think it all but guarantees they win the league given the amount of goals that he would score and almost that final piece in the jigsaw of that Pep squad. And, and for United, he's, you know, he's still a fantastic footballer. I think... I do think there's been a bit of revisionism over the last few days about how good he still is. I remember watching just during the Euros, the Portugal games, and you know, he struggled a bit against Belgium in the game. They were knocked out. But before then, I was just watching. And every time I watch him still, I'm like, shit, how are you still this good? How are you still this athletic? How are you still this impactful and decisive on games? I think it was a decision completely governed by Manchester, what Manchester City were doing. But I do think it is a very different situation from when Manchester United did a very similar thing on Alexis Sanchez, for example. I think George Mendes was offering Cristiano Ronaldo to multiple clubs, uh, including Manchester United. And the way it was described to me is that he was repeatedly calling them again and again and again, as it became more and more clear that he would like to depart Juventus this summer. And they, like other clubs, I think Man City, PSG maybe, were not biting. But that all changed clearly when Harry Kane to Manchester City was finally off and City were open to exploring other opportunities and it happened to be Ronaldo. And when that happened, I think Manchester United's attention was piqued and they realised that they couldn't allow that to happen. I think their hope, or the way it's been described to me, is that they would like to sign him or consider signing him as a free agent when he left Juventus in the summer of 2022. Even at the age of 37, as a free agent, it'd be an amazing story and I'm sure the physical condition that he's in, he could still do a good job. But that plan had to be brought forward. And Laurie refers to Thursday night. I received a message from from a player uh, who said that it's Man United. When I went further with that and other contacts, it was explained to me that it's inconceivable that he can come back to Manchester and not sign for Manchester United. Any Anybody you speak to around where I live, uh, which is just outside of Manchester, Laurie too, and you, Mark, um, it doesn't bear thinking about for Manchester United fans. It, it wasn't an option. And that's how it moved so quickly, I think. I don't think it was directly just because of Manchester City. There was a backstory to it, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back, perhaps. And if you speak to people at Manchester City, Manchester United, Ronaldo, they all have different versions of events. Manchester City feel that he wanted to join them and had expressed it and wanted to play under Pep Guardiola and saw them as presenting his best chance of winning the Champions League, even though they were proposing to pay him a lot less money than he was earning at Juventus and what Manchester United are said to be paying. Then you speak to others who say no in his mind, like Patrice Evra, it was only Manchester United if that opportunity arose. And Manchester United will say, look, we were focused on other transfer priorities, Jadon Sancho, Rafael Varane. Once those were dealt with, this became an opportunity and it was one that we took. So yes, those calls from George Mendes were rejected, but that's because we had to work through what we had planned before going for an opportunity like this. Yeah, I mean, David, excellent sourcing on the Thursday night and that was when it turned for me uh, because you had Wayne Rooney as well. That was a, I felt that was a quite a crucial public statement from him. The fact that he came out so strongly uh, saying, I don't see him playing for Manchester City. This is Wayne Rooney would talk about, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo's former teammate, clearly knows a lot of people in the game. And um, I think he subsequently said he didn't know anything at that point, although I'm not sure exactly how much I would, um, you know, believe that because I think coming out so strongly 
it just shows that he, he seemed to have an inkling of what was happening. And, you know, clearly as a manager of Derby County, you know, he doesn't have to answer that question. You know, he could easily say, that's not one for me, you know, I'm concentrating on my own team. Or he could say, I don't really know what's going on in that situation. I'd like to see him for United, but I don't know. Um, but he came out so strong. So you, you kind of, you sense a tingling a little bit there. So wake up Friday morning. And as David said, it's, it's just really difficult to corroborate something like this when clearly a, a number of parties were trying to be very secretive about it. Clearly Rio Ferdinand's tweet in the morning, the dot, dot, dot with the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, set tongues wagging. And at that stage, I, I got a text of somebody saying, um, it's Dimitar Berbatov all over again, where obviously Manchester United swooped late to uh, steal a striker from Manchester City. So, um, yeah, so you start making the calls. And, and then um, I was fortunately down in the office in London that day, so I could have sort of face-to-face contact with um, our editors to sort of decide when we should publish, um, what, what we should publish. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's press conference was at quarter past one, so the timing made it so that we probably felt we should at least see what he said first and was able to ask him the question about Ronaldo, are you in for him, basically? And the way he answered it wasn't obviously, yes, we are in for him, but he was effusive in his praise for him. And you could just tell, you know, he, he had a, a bit of a smile on his face um, and there was no way he was talking like that. Were United not in talks? And actually, in hindsight, they already knew that he was coming at that moment. So it was very much a speaking from a position of strength. And then, yeah, you, get, you go and you find out more details. And as we wrote the full piece, you find out about Sir Alex Ferguson's involvement, which I find quite nice, actually. You know, it's sort of nostalgic and, and perhaps it's a bit schmaltzy. Well, let, let, let's deal with that then. Let's deal with that. You know, from from everything you, you've all said, Ferguson involved, Rio Ferdinand involved, you've mentioned Rooney's thoughts, obviously Ole Gunnar Solskjaer involved, Darren Fletcher involved. This for you, Laurie, is all good. This isn't an attempt to try and recreate 2007. There is obviously that, element where you think should somebody go back you know is it better left alone and everyone's got the memories and everyone knows what a great impact he had I think the alternative of Man- of Manchester City signing Ronaldo was, was too much for a lot of people to handle and I, I do I, I take Adam's point that actually Ronaldo's still very very good um, you know you saw him at the Euros you've seen the goals that he scored for Juventus I know that people will look at that Juventus team and think um, was it equipped really to um, facilitate Ronaldo rather than was it the best possible team they could put out so I suppose there is that concern but I still hold that actually Ronaldo is an elite goal scorer he will score goals for Manchester United he will also rub off on the younger players the professionalism that he has the demands that he sets I can only see that as, as a positive we've already heard about Edison Cavani's impact that he's had on the likes of Mason Greenwood or Marcus Rashford. And I think that Ronaldo will just add to that. Admittedly, you know, it could be a fairly old strike force if if Cavani and Ronaldo are both up top together. But I I think that the benefits of this move, the fact that it's it's not costing a ridiculous amount of money, considering who we're talking about here, I think it is a positive move. And I don't mind that United's sort of network of old boys has got involved because, you know, that's a quite compelling story, I think. Talking about network of old boys... We were also told, Adam, that some of the Manchester City players had been in contact with Ronaldo, the Portuguese players specifically, and he had indicated that he would be joining them, which shows this was, if that's accurate, a proper decision, not just as clear-cut as, come on, let's get the band back together, and that was my plan all along. Yeah, I mean, I think Man City's part in this is absolutely fascinating because a bit like Manchester United, as well as Real Madrid and PSG, you know, they were made aware several weeks ago that Ronaldo would be available this summer. 
and their initial response was, you know, he's not a priority because we're dealing with Harry Kane. But but the sense was, and this was reported at the time in, in papers, that Man City had turned down the opportunity to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Then, you know, I think I was told even as of last Thursday, Pep had been telling people in Spain that he'd personally ruled out a move for Ronaldo. Then the Kane stuff falls apart. And within, what, four or five days of that, he's on the phone to Cristiano Ronaldo telling him where he's going to fit into his team. And then 24 hours after that, he's joining Manchester United. So it's a really odd, an odd situation from Manchester City's perspective. But I think as well, I mean, I remember talking to someone on the Thursday when it looked like he was joining City. And even at that stage, there was still, you know, they were still saying it's not, it's not done. It's not done. It's not as advanced as perhaps it's being made to be elsewhere and we are still deciding internally whether you know where he fits in both in terms of the harmony of the dressing room the wage structure stylistically on the pitch whether we really really want to do this and how hard we want to go for it and that wasn't that wasn't sort of after the after the event reimagining how it's gone so it was quite honest I think in that assessment but clearly by Thursday night City were doing that deal and then it all changed once you had people like Bruno Fernandes and Alex Ferguson getting involved. I think one of the interesting things is obviously Ronaldo's agent, George Mendes, has fantastic relationships at Manchester City. He's got Edison, Ruben Diaz, João Cancelo, Bernardo Silva. So people have been saying since then, this was all a master plan to smoke out Manchester United, to bring them to the table by making them think he's going to to Manchester City. But I, I find that hard to believe that he would sort of intentionally string Manchester City along for a pretty, you know, pretty damning PR humiliation by Friday morning and then still expect to have really fantastic relationships at Man City going forward. So I do think it was genuine that Ronaldo was probably at least open to talking to Manchester City and, you know, clearly talking to Man City players, spoken to Pep. I don't think this was a game. I think this was just Manchester United moved so strongly at the end that they could do the deal. But I don't think it was... I don't think this was some sort of master plan by anyone. Just on on, on the whole United City thing here, David, if, if George Mendes had been calling United a lot to try and get them to sign Ronaldo, but they were working on Sancho and Varane, why did it then need Ferguson, Ferdinand, et al. to then ring Ronaldo to persuade him to join United if earlier in the summer Mendes had been wanting him to join United. Because by the time Kane was off, Manchester City were making a concerted effort to sign Ronaldo and they were the only ones credibly at the table at that point and they were offering what seemed a deal that Ronaldo was ready to accept. Reportedly, he spoke with Pep Guardiola. As Adam explains, there's a very good relationship between the Manchester City hierarchy and Jorge Mendes. If you look back through the deals, not just those that Adam mentioned, but many more as well. The Diaz one involved Nicolas Otamendi, Elaikim Mangala, quite a some time ago as well. There, there are a number of transfers in in the modern era that that has seen George Mendes become increasingly close to Manchester City, and therefore I think that deal would have gone ahead if Manchester United hadn't intervened. The finances are also an issue I think we should touch upon because. As far as I know it, Manchester City were not offering as much 
as Manchester United are going to be paying. And so I presume that's a factor as well. I think United are offering a a two-year. I think Cities was one plus one uh, and the numbers are different too. So yeah, I I don't think it was as complicated a case of, you know, why did, why was Sir Alex Ferguson and and co needed? I think it was because he was heading towards Manchester City and they needed to Pull it back. Uh, Laurie, do you think it matters that he was prepared to join Manchester City? I mean, obviously, that's never going to be remembered now by by United (laughs) fans. But it's quite an interesting thing that, you know, this guy who we are for the next few weeks, you know, he's going to, I'm sure there'll be a load of social videos about homecomings and his attachment to the club. Do you think fans will care whatsoever? I think most fans will disregard it. I mean, I was at Molyneux yesterday and off the train straight away, Viva Ronaldo. Um, Portugal flags. There was even a cardboard cutout that someone had brought of Ronaldo uh, that made its way into the away end, um, to which the Wolves fans politely asked, "What the fucking hell is that?" Um, <laughs> which was a justified question. But it was a very, it was a party atmosphere. Even after Mason Greenwood scored, they're singing Ronaldo songs. You know, um, he plays on the left, he plays on the right, doing that, doing the arm signals, which was quite compelling to watch from the opposite side of the pitch. So I think they're very much sold on Ronaldo. And I think they can, United fans could, could also tell themselves that he was never really going to join City. It was all to get Manchester United to the table. So there's a certain narrative they can believe. And if, if they don't, if they actually genuinely think, yeah, he was going to join City, they might also think, well, to be fair, he wanted to leave Juventus. They were the only club coming forward. What else was he to do? You know, it's, it's a business decision. It's At the time, a lot of United fans on Thursday night were saying, this is football. Let's not be nostalgic about it. You know, he's a, he's a professional. Um, well, they might also, Laurie, say two other words, which is Wayne Rooney, in terms of someone who who was very close to joining Manchester City before he stayed yeah. at United, by yeah, for all sure. well, it was, it was That was even more dramatic, wasn't it? Because you had Ferguson sort of a little bit dewy-eyed in a press conference about yeah. Rooney and how much he wanted to leave and, and the, the hurt that that had caused. Rooney releasing a statement. Um, so, yeah, that, that was quite a, a potent situation. Just, just one more thing to add on, why United didn't act sooner, perhaps. There was a suspicion maybe that he wasn't actually going to leave Juventus. And they've obviously been stung before with Sergio Ramos and other players who have said they're going to leave and they want to leave and, and they've advanced talks. And then it, it sort of looked like they actually, you know, they've been played a little bit. And with Ronaldo himself over the years, I mean, they've tried before. To, to get Ronaldo back to the club. I think it was 2013 um, when Ferguson retired, they made an attempt that summer to try and get him. And I think the suspicion by the end of that was that he'd sort of used United's interest to end up getting a new contract at Real Madrid. So, yeah, I can understand why there would be that hesitancy. And on the point about the celebrations among United fans, surely they were even more vociferous because they had seemingly stolen him from from their rivals but it is worth pointing out that the view from Manchester City which was clearly briefed before the Manchester United move became public is that they decided against Cristiano Ronaldo and that it was a decision that was weighed up with Pep Guardiola and and all of their staff and that they needed to get a player out a significant departure was going to be needed to facilitate this um from a footballing point of view, but also from a financial point of view with with the wages. And so there is another dynamic to this narrative that it's not that he turned his back on City, it's that City ultimately decided against him and that opened the door for United. So it's quite an interesting um, array of views. Do, Do City, David, then, in the bigger picture, feel like they have missed out on Harry Kane, Ronaldo... Lukaku and Lionel Messi this summer or do they feel that actually 
with the exception of Harry Kane, who they couldn't get out of Tottenham, they were never in for the others. And that's other clubs' business doing their business and they're happy with where they're at? Or is there regret that they've missed out on on any one of those four players? Great question, and I don't want audiences to batter me for this, but I was at City on Saturday, and I know quite a few of the people at and around the club. I genuinely don't sense that they are distraught about missing out on these players. I mean, let's see how the season pans out, and there may be a different view if they're struggling for goals and um, they fail to challenge for the honours that they want to, and they are very clear that they wanted to strengthen at number nine following the departure of Sergio Aguero. We reported way back in February that the list included Romelu Lukaku. Harry Kane emerged as the top choice, whether that was in and amongst Erling Haaland as well, who uh, it became clear relatively soon would be staying at Borussia Dortmund. They made an attempt for Kane. I mean, that's a a story in itself and whether they should have gone further and harder. But clearly, we've seen with City over the years that they have their valuations for players and they stick to them. The Messi one didn't seem to be particularly applicable this summer. And then the opportunity arose with Ronaldo and it was seen as that, an opportunity. But at City, when you're going for players of the calibre of Harry Kane... You don't necessarily have a plan B or C because they're at such elite, an elite level that you can't necessarily find someone else that would come and improve what you've already got from the existing market. That may well be very different in the summer of 2022, but I can't think off the top of my head loads of players that would instantly come in who are available in these final few days of the window and boost City. So now I don't think they're going to do anything. You never say never and there could be a dramatic late twist, but as far as I know, they're not working on something. They were exploring things last week, as as we know, but I don't know how vigorously they are now. And yeah, their first game of the season at Tottenham didn't go to plan. Their subsequent two uh, against poor opposition have gone to plan and they look in pretty decent shape. They do think Ferran Torres is going to develop into a natural number nine um, who has the qualities and the spatial awareness and the instinct to score a lot of goals in that position. And I don't doubt that they will look to address it at some point. But Aguero didn't play a great deal last season and they had arguably their most successful season in their history. So, yeah, I do sense they're calm. And whether that's just a front, I don't know. But it's coming from multiple unconnected people. So uh, I am tempted to take it at face value. Just a few more on this, because there are so many ways in in which we can go. They're not being able to stomach Ronaldo in a Manchester City shirt. Adam, do you think that's generational? Do you think that's a younger social media audience that will have persuaded them to do that? Because the older fan will go, and I know people keep going... Schmeichel and Andy Cole, which which is fine. But the older ones will go, there's a statue of Dennis Law outside Old Trafford. And, and Dennis Law is the king, right? The first king before Eric the king, right? So it has happened before. And I think probably to the older fan, you don't, you don't do United and Liverpool. United and City is a different thing. You don't do United and Liverpool. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. But at the same time, I mean, was Twitter even invented when Cristiano Ronaldo was last at Manchester United? You know, <laughs> Maybe what, what, just. Facebook, I think, was only a year or two old at that stage. So I think this is actually a bit of a middle age thing, to be honest. I'm putting myself in that category as well for the purposes of, of this. I think it's like a sort of millennial onwards. Those people who saw Ronaldo in a United shirt, and that extends from, you know, people my age to people 
like Sir Alex Ferguson. And I think there is also, you know, would United have done this deal if they didn't have so many people currently involved in the coaching setup who were who were at the club at that time? You know, when you look at people like Solskjaer and Mike Phelan and Michael Carrick, Darren Fletcher involved, obviously Sir Alex as well. There's always been this slightly misty-eyed soppiness for the way that he developed, not only at United, but what he then went on to do, having been a product of United. So I don't think it's necessarily like a young person's infatuation. I think it's actually multi-generational um, and this real pining that people have always had for him to come back at some point. I, I do agree with in relation to, you know, I think if he would have been prepared to join Liverpool as of Thursday night, I think that would have been a, mo- a much bigger problem. I think it was with City, it was, it always felt to me this, this feels so weird, it won't happen, even though we knew it kind of was happening. But with Liverpool, I think it would have been a lot angrier. You know, I saw, I think it was Friday morning, I saw one supporter on social media burning United Ronaldo shirt. And then obviously several hours later, I'm sure they were very happy. But I think with Liverpool, it would have been, there would have been a far more vicious element to to, to the general reaction and also what it would have been like for him living in the northwest of England. The sort of misty-eyed fondness, as, as Adam calls it, for the past, and I don't, I don't want to turn this into Arsenal, David, because it's obviously been a painful enough weekend for for, for Arsenal fans. There are all, so many ways of doing things within sport, not just football. Some people get rid of everybody from the past and and make a clean break and go in a in a different direction. Others hang on to it. Others use it to an advantage. There's probably no right or wrong, but maybe there is a, bearing in mind Ferguson and Wenger were compared so often during their careers, there is a real contrast actually maybe to United's use of Ferguson and Arsenal's use of Wenger. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I don't think Arsene Wenger's been to an Arsenal match since he left the club and there have been some suggestions that he won't until, I don't know, whether he's got issues with certain people at the club or whether he had, because there have been so many changes there. I'm sure he will at some point. He's got a new role with FIFA, in which you're seeing him um, in more places now. He was at Melwood, uh, well, sorry, I should say Liverpool's new training ground uh, recently, and so I'm sure his path with Arsenal will cross again. But in terms of use of him and influence, it's very upsetting to a lot of people around Arsenal that he has no real influence. I think there was some contact with some influential people there, at certain periods of the last few years to offer advice, sounding board now and again, but it was very sort of private and informal, whereas Ferguson is a a visible uh, part of Manchester United to this day. He was front and centre in the stands at Wolves on Sunday. And I think that's pretty sad because I guess Manchester United were a bigger club, Goliath, even pre-Ferguson, at times, historically, of course, than Arsenal ever were before Wenger. And so Wenger's transformational effect in relative terms was possibly bigger. And for that person not to attend matches or visit the training ground or be consulted on any decisions when he's deemed to be one of the most influential men in world football, given his title at FIFA, is surely only an asset. I understand why there may have been a desire to break from both parties initially. New era, new people. We saw very little of Sir Alex Ferguson when David Moyes took charge of the club, even though he was influential in his appointment. And then, of course, um, Van Gaal as well. But you know, time is moving on and Arsenal are seemingly really struggling for their identity, let alone their former glories. And people who know the club so well, know any club so well, 
if they have the right skill set, can surely only be of benefit. So when you look, coming back to your point, at Ferguson's continued involvement, just his presence and the respect he garners from those players, the feel-good factor he brings, the, the advice if and when it's needed, I don't know how often they seek it at executive level, then there comes a time where you think surely you can work a way that it's only of benefit. They've reached a point, Laurie, I suppose, where there is a where they are secure with Ferguson's presence and, and the past rather than threatened by it. Yes, for sure. Um, I think there was a time previously when it felt like managers weren't comfortable with his presence. Certainly David Moyes, I think he, he wanted to, Sir Alex Ferguson wanted to make sure that he had a platform of his own uh, and kind of sort of step back from that, you know, similar situation with Louis van Gaal and, and clearly Jose Mourinho, not as close as, as Solskjaer and Ferguson are, you know, Solskjaer would go to Ferguson's office after games at Old Trafford um, pretty regularly. They'd have discussions, they'd, they'd talk frequently um, and that's just a natural relationship. It's not like it's being forced there. So whereas in other situations, it might feel like that. So I think it's a, a fine situation to tap into a guy who has all that experience, all that winning mentality, the relationships that he's got, I don't see it as a negative really to to have Ferguson, you know, pick up a phone to the kid that he gave a debut to as an 18-year-old um, and touching on what Adam said earlier, that feeling that Ronaldo grew from a boy to a man at Old Trafford is one of the main pillars of why he's so, you know, felt with such affection at Old Trafford. Uh, I don't think there's any problem with Ferguson calling him up and saying, Ronaldo, you need to be coming back to Manchester United, not, not Man City. Um, and also his relationship with George Mendes, I think, is a good one. So that, that was a useful um, link to have as well. I know there's a temptation after these events are done and when, you know, people like us and other publications are doing all these pieces about how deals were done. And sometimes, you know, you get the impression maybe something's been hemmed up a little bit or it's being exaggerated. I do think with Ferguson and Ronaldo, there is this genuine, genuine affection. And actually, almost between the two of them, there is this sense of deferral between the two that when Ferguson speaks... Ronaldo listens and when Ronaldo's in the room, Ferguson just sort of looks at him in a little bit of awe. And you've seen that just in these clips that you see of Ferguson after, I think it was after Portugal won the Euros and after Real Madrid won a Champions League and he presented him with the Man of the Match trophy, just the interaction between the two. And obviously it comes down to the success they enjoy together, but also how Ferguson stood up for Ronaldo at very, very big moments earlier in his career, whether it was getting rid of Ruud van Nistelrooy after the two of them had had a few disagreements and choosing Ronaldo, whether it was after Ronaldo's father died, the amount of time off and compassion that Ferguson showed. You know, he's, he's been there for him. So when Ferguson then makes a very important phone call, I think there is this, you know, this sense of, yeah, I have to listen to what this guy says. And I think it's not only with Ronaldo, I think just watching David Gea's form at the start of this season, my mind goes back to that match against Villarreal where it was a disaster. For, for David De Gea, he didn't save a penalty, arguably, you know, his fault that United didn't win that tournament. And coming off the pitch, the person waiting for him to put an arm around him was the man who signed him, who did so much to develop him. And, you know, just talking to a few people close to De Gea last night, they were saying, you know, that was the start of De Gea trying to rebuild him, you know, his confidence in himself, which has also improved a lot just by being around the Spanish camp this summer and then coming back early for pre-season as well, um, to get back in the gym and get in, in his best shape. And he started well. We'll see how, you know, whether he can maintain that. Because if he does, then it's a huge thing for Manchester United. And my final question, Laurie, is kind of linked 
to De Gea, which is the deal that Ronaldo will get at United. Are they comfortable with it? Not from not from whether they can afford it or not, but what how that deal goes down in the dressing room, bearing in mind one of their biggest players is out of contract in a year's time because we've seen with De Gea's contract or Alexis Sanchez when they signed him how one contract can then affect lots of other negotiations that are ongoing. Yeah, I think it will be fine in the dressing room because as we've seen, you know, we've heard privately and then we've seen on social media how buzzing the players are to have Ronaldo in their midst, you know, that they know what career he's had and what a presence he brings um, and that, you know, winning mentality, I suppose. So I think they will respect that, listen, this guy needs to be top earner because of what he's done in the game and, and just what it takes to get into the club. So I, th- I think that's fine. It's also for two years, so it's not like it's a long, long-term contract where it'll be, you know, five, six years and, you know, it's it's consistently brought up. Clearly, there might be, you know, some knock-on effect for Paul Pogba. I mean, we're led to believe that, um, you know, that, that £400,000 a week offer, which is our understanding, is, is still on the table. It's, it's you know, not been rejected yet, but equally not been accepted. So it's something that will develop over time. And whether or not the Ronaldo situation affects that, we'll, we'll wait and see. It could do, I suppose. But um, I think United will still feel comfortable in thinking Ronaldo is the price worth paying. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Right, let's round up the latest transfer news ahead of the window shutting on Tuesday night. Is it going to be busy on deadline day, David? Do you think there'll be much business or is a lot done now? I'm hoping this is a dose of reverse psychology, uh, but I don't think it will be as manic as we might have expected. Or maybe it will be manic, but not so much at the level that many fans would expect because so many of the big deals have already been done. Clearly, there's... the potential to be arguably the biggest if um, Kylian Mbappe ends up joining Real Madrid from PSG. But lower down, I do think there will be a flurry of loans and swaps and smaller deals and low price permanent transfers. Of course, there will be the odd exception, but I don't know of tons brewing and I'd love to be proved incorrect because I'm going to be working that day and I want to be busy. But no, at this moment in time, um, the market is very quiet, subject to change. Uh, what's going on with Kylian Mbappe, Adam? Well, I, th- I think what happened over the weekend is Paris Saint-Germain wanted to give Lionel Messi his moment and they didn't want any kind of announcement about selling Kylian Mbappe to be coming out and overshadowing you know, what they considered to be you know, their big bang moment of Messi in French football. And they clearly had that moment last night, obviously. The irony is that I think Mbappe scored both goals um, in, in their victory. So, yeah, Real Madrid are still trying to get this done. They've made two offers, the first 160 million euros, the second 180 million euros, which means that it equals what PSG invested in terms of transfer fees on Mbappe when they signed him from Monaco. PSG still want more. They've not actually rejected this offer yet, but they, they think they can tease it's up to 200 million euros from Real Madrid. And they might be right, but as the clock gets closer to that deadline, so too does that deadline where 180 million euros becomes zero 
because his contract's up at the end of the season. PSG don't need to sell. And that's that could also prove to be completely significant in what in what happens over the next couple of days. You know, actually in terms of financial fair play is basically on holiday for, for the next year or so. And even with financial fair play, if you actually go through the accounts, um, there's a piece on the Athletic at the moment saying how how mess the, the commercial pull of Messi PSG will believe the cost and sort of analysing and scrutinising that. But in relation to financial fair play, PSG believe they would comply even if they didn't sell Mbappe, um, just because of some of the business they've done over the last few years. So there isn't really a pressure apart from whether they just think it's the right thing to do to let the player go, to fulfil his dream of joining Real Madrid and take you know a good wedge of money that they can then reinvest. But they may take the view, this is going into 2022, a huge year for the Qatar World Cup. If you have Ronaldo, uh, not Ronaldo, I'm not taking him as well. Um, if you have <laughs> Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe as your forward line, it would be huge for QSI, Qatar Sport Investment, the OPSG, to win the Champions League in the same year that they host the World Cup. Putting a price on that for their project is quite a difficult thing to do. My instinct is that it will still happen, but I think PSG are going to try and keep pushing that figure higher and higher. And Florentino Perez, who has gone all in this summer, you know, he also closed the door on a return for Cristiano Ronaldo, is under a lot of pressure to get this deal done. And it's going to be a fascinating battle, battle of wills between him and Nasser Al-Khalafi, the PSG president, to see where this goes and also how far Mbappe is prepared to push it. Because on Sunday night, he was playing and looked pretty happy. And what's the worst for him? You know, he stays for a season, hangs out with Messi and Neymar, maybe wins the Champions League, then joins Real Madrid on a free transfer and gets a bumper signing on bonus. It doesn't sound like the worst outcome, whatever happens for him. He's in a great place. So definitely one to watch, but not, not clear cut yet. Yeah, I think Adam's analysis is absolutely fascinating and people listening to this should go and read his stuff on The Athletic about PSG, about Mbappe, Real Madrid, etc. On a basic level, I think it's madness that Real Madrid are proposing this sort of money. I think it's madness that PSG um, aren't biting their hand off when he can uh, sign a pre-contract agreement to join as a free agent from January with the move happening in the summer. But all of Adam's points are absolutely correct and explain why it's not as basic as what I just said. And with that, it may also be a deadline day that is more about what doesn't happen than what does. Not for the first time. We've had a few of those, but we've reported in my Monday column about Jules Koundé, who looked absolutely nailed on to be joining Chelsea as their second key signing of the summer after Romelu Lukaku. But we explained that pretty much since the completion of Kurt Zouma's transfer from Chelsea to West Ham that was designed to free up the space for Kunde, Kunde to come in, Sevilla have seemingly moved the goalposts and asked for €15 million Euros more than what was initially verbally agreed. Now, Chelsea... I think quite understandably, are not going to play that sort of game and they are unprepared to offer more money at the drop of a hat like that. So I think this deal is off as things stand unless Sevilla decide to drop that new demand. They've been offered potential solutions that they've turned down. They've tried to secure potential solutions like a... Sven Botman from Lille but the asking price of Lille is too expensive it's getting extremely late and that is one of many that might just end up not happening there is, a, there is also a potential knock-on of 
if Mbappe happens, what do PSG do? Um, what do PSG do with close to 200 million euros with a day to go? And and, and the world could go crazy um, well, at that point. And, and you know, Raphael Honigstein writes, Adam, doesn't he, in the Monday column about Borussia Dortmund being a bit nervous. Mm. Mm, yeah, I mean, clearly there's a situation with Erling Haaland where it seemed like everyone across Europe had this de facto agreement that he wasn't going anywhere this summer and then everyone gets to fight for him next summer because there's a clause 75 million next summer, David, yeah. Euros, yeah. To, to, to take him from Borussia Dortmund. So that was that was what seemed to be the agreement. Then there was a report in the Daily Telegraph the other day that PSG may seek to do Haaland before the end of the window um, if they were to sell Mbappe and have started sounding him out. The latest I have on that is PSG aren't expecting to do it before the end of the window. That doesn't mean they're not interested. It doesn't mean they've not sounded him out. I think that one worth watching is Richarlison, potentially. There's definitely people involved who would like to make that happen. Um, I'm not sure they're necessarily, uh, necessarily that PSG are completely determined, but I know Neymar has a very good relationship with Richarlison. He is slightly more similar in style to some of the other targets that have been you know, compared as replacements to Mbappe. If you've got... Messi and Neymar, you do need someone to do some of the running at some point as well. So I think that one's worth worth monitoring, but there's no suggestion at the moment of it being imminent. And also we should say Rafa Benitez has insisted that Everton don't want to do that deal and won't do that deal. Maybe the penalty strop was intentional. Well, I was going to say, Richarlison isn't going to get the penalties at Paris Saint-Germain, <laughs> is he? So that, uh, but but if they couldn't do Haaland this, this summer, they could easily just wait till January and still blow everybody out of the water, couldn't they, Adam, before the release clause is activated next summer, if, if they, they wanted to? They could, and like we are, we're, we're, now, well, we're now entering sort of slightly monopoly speculative stages, yeah. but if PSG were to have this wedge of cash tomorrow and start going for Haaland, do Manchester City get involved? You know, as a club that really, really want a number nine over the next eighty, well, over the next twelve months, and Haaland's obviously been a long-term target. They would know that obviously Manchester United can't go and do that deal now. You would think Chelsea wouldn't do that deal now, so it would then become. And Real Madrid have also spent would have spent all their money, and Barcelona can't do that money. So it would then become a, compl- a face-off between Man City and PSG in that event. But as I say, I mean, being told by PSG at the moment that you know it's not really commit. To you know, to going too big on that on that transfer at this stage. So let's see what happens with Mbappe first. Um, I'd be very very surprised if Haaland's situation changes, but I can understand why Dortmund would be nervous about PSG being even richer than they already are. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we go, just tell us about the, the lead item in your column, David, this morning, which is to do with Liverpool Sporting Director Michael Edwards. Yeah, it's my understanding, Mark, that Michael Edwards is expected to leave Liverpool next summer. His contract expires at the end of this season. And I think conversations have been going on for quite some time about whether it's time to move on. There's nothing hostile to my knowledge at all. Very amicable conversations. He has been absolutely amazing at Liverpool, in especially in recent years, in terms of signings, in terms of sales, in terms of contract renewals. And he is held up by people within the industry. So this is not my opinion as being the standard bearer, gold standard for sporting directors. He doesn't talk publicly. He doesn't give interviews. He just gets on with his work. He doesn't crave the attention and people at rival clubs who are renowned in this industry for sniping about each other do not snipe about Michael Edwards. So this is a conversation that is live, I guess. Nothing has been finalised. Liverpool have put plans in place, very impressively actually, since December of 2020, where Julian Ward was promoted to the role of assistant sporting director, which I don't think I know of at any other Premier League club. Maybe there is that sort of role on the continent. And he is also very highly regarded within the industry. He's become increasingly visible around the club and influential and popular. If he is to replace Edwards, if Edwards leaves, then I think Liverpool would be in really good shape. I don't know of them looking to external candidates. And I don't know of any other clubs being involved in this potential decision either. I don't think he's uh, being poached or looking to move elsewhere, although I'm sure many clubs would love to take him if he was available and open to the idea. He has a background um, of likes of Portsmouth and Tottenham, so the South is is obviously where he's from. I don't know if that's a factor in, in the thinking, but make no mistake about it, it would be a seismic moment for a club that he has become a cornerstone of to what they're doing on and off the pitch. He's very close with, of course, Jurgen Klopp, the recruitment team, Mike Gordon, the president of FSG, Liverpool's owners, Julian Ward as well. Michael Edwards is fundamental that everything to everything that happens at Liverpool, but I've got to say that they've got loads of other really capable people as well. And so I think if this happens, it will be handled in their normal, graceful and commendable way. And the way things are looking for Liverpool this season, they um, could well continue to challenge this season and for many years to come for all the major competitions. And that's largely a result of the foundations that Edwards has helped put in place. Uh, right, that's it. We will leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Adam and David and Laurie, to read all the articles we've discussed today, including David's uh, Monday column. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes are here tomorrow taking another deep dive on one story on The Athletic. And I'll be back on Thursday on this feed with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast. Bye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
The Athletic.